You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. All righty. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Fired Up. Happy Monday afternoon, everybody. And I hope everybody is doing well. You're listening to Fired Up, the political talk show right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And uh, we've got a lot to cover today, and we'll jump right into it. First, a little bit of housekeeping, though. Uh, I hope everyone, especially the, the mothers out there, the single moms, the married moms, the, the Mr. Moms out there, let's not forget the fathers who are, are raising children you know, as a single dad as well. I uh, hope everybody had a, just a tremendous Mother's Day and got the honor and and spoiling and treatment that you all so richly deserve uh, another you know great time and and hope everybody enjoyed it so here we are it's monday afternoon it's time for fire it up this is steve i host the show each week so let's jump right in as always we're going to start with our covid coronavirus update and as of today in the united states there are 32.8 million cases of the coronavirus uh, in the country uh, and 582,000 people have died from the disease Uh, and on the upside we have 255.6 million people have received at least one dose of the uh, COVID vaccine and that represents uh, about 44 percent of the adult population of the country on a side note, uh, I got my vaccine uh, early this morning. Uh, un- unfortunately, because I record the show prior to the Monday it's aired, uh, I won't be able to tell you whether or not I breeze through it like I did the first one or if I had some side effects, but I'll definitely let you know how it went on next Monday's show. Uh, I'm not expecting to have a whole lot of serious side effects from the vaccine, but like I said, We'll let you know how it turns out. So uh, staying on, on coronavirus for a minute, uh, they, a news article coming out of Florida uh, on the 9th of May, on y- yesterday, uh, and this comes from ABC News, and it talks about how that the state of Florida is reporting more than 10,000 COVID-19 variant cases surging after spring break. 243 people have been hospitalized with variants and 67 of them have died. Uh, and the, the article talks about, and, and if you remember, I, I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago when I talked about you know, what effect spring break might have on you know, the Florida population and said we'd have to wait and see what happens. Well, now we're starting to see uh, what has transpired. Uh, as the article reports, variant COVID-19 infections skyrocketed following spring break in Florida, and there have been more than 10,000 variant cases reported throughout the state. The South Florida Sun Sentinel reported based on data they received from the Florida Department of Health. A total of 753 variant cases from three strains, the B1.1.7, the P1.1, and the B1.3.5.1, were reported back on March 14th, according to variant infection data shared with ABC News. Um, The Department of Health in Florida, by the way, does not disclose variant cases on its public dashboard. 
Uh, that number reported swelled to more than 5,177 cases from five different types of variants on April 15th. Uh, just two weeks later, the number of variant in infections exploded to 9,248 on April 27th, according to the local ABC uh, affiliate WFTV. Um, the article notes that the surge falls in line with mid-March, April into spring break celebrations when college students and vacationers flock to the Sunshine State. So Florida has the distinction of being the home to the most variant COVID-19 cases in the country. So they're reporting more than 11,800 cases of COVID-19 variants this past Wednesday, according again to the Florida Sun Sentinel. In total, as I mentioned, variants have led to the hospitalization of 243 residents and the death of 67 people in Florida. This data comes out even though only 1% of all COVID-19 cases in Florida undergo testing to study their genetic coding, meaning the number of variant infections is likely much higher than what's been reported. Uh, the data regarding variants was first released Monday hours after Governor Ron DeSantis announced the lift of all COVID-19 restrictions. So, you know, that controversial move from Governor DeSantis uh, has resulted in, you know, criticism from, from Florida health officials, as well as, you know, uh, Democratic and other political leaders in the Sunshine State. So this news comes out, coming out of Florida uh, is interesting and concerning in light of the fact that vac vaccinations across the country have slowed over the last six to eight weeks, uh, raising the concerns over the threat of these highly transmissible variants. In Florida, the V1.1.7 variant, which first emerged in the United Kingdom, it's also known as the UK variant, makes up the highest number of variant cases. So, you know, there are several reports of the South African and Brazilian variants also showing up in Florida. As of uh, May 1st, this article continues, Miami-Dade County led the state with 2,279 variant cases, followed by Broward County with 1,950 cases. And this again is according to the Florida Sun Sentinel newspaper. The variants seem to be gaining traction overall, COVID-19 cases in the Sunshine State are slowing. Uh, health officials reported a 4.67 COVID-19 positivity rate just this past Friday, uh, the second day in a row that it's dipped below 5%, according to state data. Uh, a Miami-based cardiologist who's worked on the front lines of the pandemic, Dr. Bernard Ashby, is warning of the dangers of the variants, especially in populous areas. According to Dr. Ashby, if you look at the county breakdown, Miami-Dade leads the state in variants followed by Broward County, and we've led infectious rates in general. Uh, what's interesting, according to Dr. Ashby, is the degree to much uh, is the degree to you know how the counties dominated. These counties essentially account for almost forty percent of the variants in the state that's out there. So, you know, it's, you know, raising concerns uh, and it's hard to ignore that in, in a state where, you know, basically it's open for business, um, it, it, it is clearly leading to surges in 
you know, COVID-19, particularly the COVID-19 variants. And, you know, this information getting out there should serve as a, a bellwether, a warning to other states who are, you know, opening up uh, their states uh, to, you know, group gatherings and, you know, restaurants and bars and, and so on and so forth. Um, that, you know, we're not out of the woods with the pandemic. It is still, you know, a, a, a killer in this country. People are still getting sick. People are still dying. And the fact that so many people um, are refusing or, or hesitant to get, you know, the vaccines uh, really just makes the problem worse. Obviously, our, our path out of the, the pandemic uh, includes not only vaccination, but it also includes, you know, participation and adherence by the general population to the rules that the Centers for Disease, Disease Control and other medical uh, health officials and, and leaders are telling us that, you know, even as we vaccinate, uh, there's still the need in certain situations where you need to wear your mask, where you need to socially distance. And of course, you know, washing your hands and not touching your eyes, uh, nose or mouth still remains a priority, even as the number of people vaccinated slowly increases. Uh, obviously, we you know, would like to see the vaccination rate uh, in, increase uh, consistently and steadily. Um, but, you know, we, we, we have a good number of people. I've heard estimates of, you know, 30 to 40 percent of American adults uh, say they, they are either hesitant or refuse to get the vaccination for various reasons, uh, some of them uh, more uh, scientifically sound than others, uh, some just plain ridiculous. But you know, it, it's clear that, you know, the, the slower the vaccination rate and, you know, the, the infection rate alone is not going to get us to that, you know, high 60 to 70 percent um, people who have had the COVID-19 and, and achieve the, the so-called, you know, herd immunity. Um, but, you know, it, it does just let us know that we have to maintain our diligence in doing whatever we can to make sure that we're staying safe, you know, for ourselves, for our families, for our community, and for our country. Uh, and as more and more uh, local and state governments uh, accede to the, the public pressure to, you know, return to more normal activity levels, particularly as we now are, are getting closer and closer to you know, real summertime, uh, even though the weather up here in Pennsylvania isn't letting us know that summer's on the way. Um, it, it's something that we have to be aware of, that we have to, uh, you know, talk to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and, you know, make sure that we're having the conversations to try and convince them of the benefits of getting the vaccine. And, you know, it, it just is something that we are, are going to have to undertake as a country if we want to put uh, the pandemic uh, behind us or at least make it no more of a headache than the, the annual flu season that shows up, you know, and you know, we've, we've got to do our part. 
So um, speaking of the flu season, uh, it, it's also been noted in news reports, um, somewhat anecdotally, but that there has been a marked reduction in the number of flu cases in the U.S. Uh, this year, um, in part and, and probably mostly due to the fact that everybody has been, you know, essentially quarantining to some extent or another uh, over the past, you know, 16 months. And therefore, the transmission rate of the flu uh, has been drastically reduced. That doesn't mean that it's gone away. It just means that because of our activities, uh, we, are, we are having the positive effect of reducing the number of flu cases that we have seen in this past uh, flu season compared to other years going back. So, uh, you know, that, that should serve also as an indicator that, you know, if, if we um, increase the seriousness with which, you know, we, we battle this disease, both on the vaccination front as well as on the personal responsibility front that we could do to COVID much like we did to the flu uh, strains this, this flu season and you know, basically starve it uh, to very low levels of existence. Um, it, it's probably, COVID is probably gonna be with us uh, for some time to come. You know, several uh, scientists um, are saying that you know, given the level of vaccinations and given the, the level of participation uh, by the, the populace in you know, the, the common sense measures we're encouraged to take that it, it's going to be a slower journey to you know reducing the covid vaccine to a a comparable level of concern that we have for the flu so you know just some some food for thought there you know and again you know i encourage everyone you know within the sound of my voice to you know make your appointment and get your vaccination uh, when it's available to you. It's been opened up to, you know, all adults. Uh, there's also uh, considerations being given by the CDC to lower the availability ages uh, down to as low as 12 years old. And, you know, that's, that's created another uh, storm of discussion and concern about vaccinating, you know, children at 12 years old. And, you know, while we won't get into that on this episode, we will definitely uh, do more research on it, get more facts and information, and bring you reporting on that uh, probably in next week's show as we talk about COVID. So, you know, our call to action is clear. Let's do what we need to do. Uh, if you have the opportunity to get the vaccine, please uh, get the vaccine. It's, it's the best way to get yourself and, and your family and your community back to more normal levels of activity. So, all right, all right, so let's, um, let's switch pages here. Let's get into our uh, political messaging. And, you know, this past week, we saw an announcement from Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that the Senate Republicans uh, are basically going to, to um, not back any Biden agenda items, uh, including you know, the, the two latest uh, rescue packages uh, on infrastructure and, and so forth, 
Um, and according to you know, the, the articles and the news out there, um, McConnell said on Monday that he expected no Republicans would support President Biden's sweeping infrastructure package, including, or indicating rather, that uh, GOP lawmakers are open to a roughly $600 billion bill. Uh, McConnell's quoted saying, I think it's worth talking about, but I don't think there will be any Republican support, none, zero, for the $4.1 trillion grab bag, which has infrastructure in it, but a whole lot of other stuff, McConnell said in a press conference in Kentucky. Um, President Biden ha- you know, is proposing a sweeping roughly $4 trillion infrastructure package broken up into two pieces, uh, a $2.3 trillion jobs package and a $1.8 trillion families package. While the package includes money for roads, bridges, and broadband, it also expands into manufacturing, in-home care, housing, clean energy, public schools, and manufacturing. Democrats are likely to have to go it alone under uh, the budget reconciliation powers they have, which allows them to bypass the 60-vote filibuster to pass most, if not all, of Biden's package. Uh, A group of Senate Republicans, led by Senator Shelley Moore, uh, I'm sorry, Senator Shelley Moore Capito, uh, Republican of West Virginia, have proposed a $568 billion package. Uh, President Biden and Senator Capito talked last, uh, late last week, both expressing an interest to keep negotiating and potentially setting up another White House meeting. And in, in news reports that came out uh, on the talk shows on Sunday, um, it seems that those meetings are in fact scheduled and Biden will be meeting with uh, not only a group of Democratic leadership members, but also a group of senators from the Republican Party uh, sometime in the latter half of this week, where you know he's going to talk over his plans and, and try and see if there is a path to reach uh, a, a bipartisan agreement on you know, both the infrastructure and the family plan uh, that he's proposing. You know, but McConnell is, is, is really clear and, and is digging his heels in. You know, and he's quoted as saying, we're open to doing a roughly $600 billion package, which deals with what all of us agree is infrastructure, Said he said. If it's going to be about infrastructure, let's make it about infrastructure. And just a note here, at a basic level, I actually agree with Senator McConnell in, in that statement. Um, you know, it, it's one of the things that I think is problematic with, you know, our, our way of bringing laws uh, into being is this, you know, uh, the jambalaya, this, this um, you know, potluck approach to throwing everything, including the kitchen sink and the bathtub, into these mega bills uh, to try and get them through, rather than you know taking, in, in my opinion, what should be a logical approach. So, in regard to you know an infrastructure bill, yes, I think it should it should have money in there and and more money for you know highways and road repair and bridge repair and, and construction. Uh, it should have money in there to build out our national uh, internet infrastructure, uh, particularly into those areas of the country that are currently poorly served by the internet. Given that you know in-home schooling 
and other pandemic-related internet needs are still a thing that we have to deal with. I think adding in, you know, bills for um, lesser uh, infrastructure-related, um, while important, you know, care for the elderly is is absolutely necessary and important. But I think you can bundle those kinds of uh, those kinds of uh, packages into additional bills that are perhaps a little more budget-friendly, a little easier to take, and could probably generate more bipartisan support and, you know, make it more practical in order to, to bring it to fruition. So, you know, um, the other thing that Republicans uh, are, you know, definitely up in arms and, and have, you know, pulled up the drawbridge and, and are, are guarding the wall on is how all of these expensive bills are going to be paid for. Now, I will say that the arguments that Republicans are making about the impact of these bills on the deficit rings a little bit hollow and a little bit hypocritical, given that you know, they passed in 2017 a pretty much unfunded tax cut bill that added more than $2 trillion to the deficit uh, while the Republicans were in, in control of the administration, um, you know, uh, uh, again. So, you know, okay, guys, you can absolutely express concern about the impact on the deficit, but let's not pretend that your tax cut bill uh, of 2017 didn't add a huge amount of money to the deficit, uh, you, know, over, you know, over the next 10 years, um, you know, as well as reducing the amount of tax income that the federal government receives through such measures as lowering the corporate uh, tax rate um, down to 21 percent um, and, you know, slashing the tax rate on wealthy individuals and, through capital gains tax reductions and so forth. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's one thing to propose these necessary pieces of legislation and you know the these necessary items that need to get done in in terms of keeping our country moving but we need to be equally as energetic about you know finding ways to increase revenue fairly that allows us to pay for these these items they they should not be unfunded so you know the the battle lines you know are definitely drawn on the impacts of you know Biden's uh, proposals to the budget, but to the Republicans, I say, uh, you know, lighten up on the the rhetoric about the impact on the deficit, uh, because you guys put a huge hole in the budget with your tax cuts in 2017, and didn't seem to you know have much concern about its effect. On, on our deficit going forward at that time. So, you know, let, let's be real. You know, yes, we need to find a way to pay for these, uh, but, you know, just complaining that it's adding to the deficit without offering any positive solutions, you know, whether it's a perhaps a more fair uh, increase in, you know, capital gains tax or a more fair uh, increase in the corporate tax rate, uh, to, to generate revenue to offset what these bills are going to cost over 
you know, five years or 10 years and so forth, um, that would be, you know, a good example of bipartisan work on, you know, helping to rebuild America and helping us to recover from the effects of the pandemic. Uh, just sitting, sitting in the back and, you know, taking pot shots uh, really doesn't move the needle in terms of helping us get the necessary work done, the necessary fixes in place that we do so desperately need. Um, and, you know, just sitting there and, and you know, as I said, firing pot shots, talking about how the Democrats are going to explode the budget and, you know, and so forth. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how the battle shape up, particularly now that the Republicans ha have made it clear, at least through Mitch McConnell, that they are going to sit on their hands uh, and not support uh, any of you know, President Biden's uh, agenda items going forward. Um, it, it looks like we are returning to something like uh, what happened in 2010 when you know, McConnell and Senate Republicans uh, obstructed or you know, did everything they could to derail the agenda plans of you know, then-President Obama. So the end result of that was nothing got done. And we can't go through another period like that. We need uh, definite fixes in our infrastructure. We need definite expansion of our internet network. Uh, all of the things that you know are infrastructure related are, in, in my opinion, critical items that the Republicans owe it to their constituencies uh, to to weigh in on, to offer their opinions on, and to work toward compromise to get realistic programs in place. Uh, proposing just a six hundred billion dollar uh, skinny package uh, that isn't you know, going to go in-depth enough uh, is only a Band-Aid solution. We're past putting Band-Aids on our, our problems. We need to do the kind of surgery that needs to be done in order to put fixes in place once and for all. So that's my two cents on that. Uh, we'll take our first break right here. If you have any thoughts or opinions on, you know, what I've just reported or what I've been talking about, please feel free to send email to the show. Our email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. As always, I, I look forward with great anticipation to getting emails from the listeners and, and hearing your sides and your opinions uh, and, and learning from what you can tell me. So uh, send an email to the show, firedupradio at yahoo.com. We'll be right back with more Fired Up right here on wjmsradio.com where radio is reimagined. You're listening to us here. We appreciate it. We'll be right back after the break. Bring back the 
time again I relapse But your love is always waiting Perhaps I can't save myself So I fade to Welcome back to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve, your host each week, and uh, let's get right back into it, shall we? So, I wanted to talk about, we've we've talked over the last uh, month or so, uh, going back through Georgia and other states in the country that are uh, proposing and now enacting uh, new voter uh, laws and regulations in their states. And uh, Florida this past week uh, signed a law, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law into effect that uh, implements some wide-ranging um, restrictions to the voting process in the Sunshine State. Now, it should be noted up front that uh, the signing of this bill when Governor DeSantis signed it, none of the national or local press uh, was invited to the signing, although he signed it live on um, Fox News on their Fox and Friends program. So Fox was the only media outlet present uh, when he signed this bill. Uh, no other reporters were in the room or, or anywhere near uh, in order to raise questions or, or comments about the bill. Uh, it also should be noted that within hours of the signing of that bill, um, several uh, Florida uh, groups and several other groups from around the country have already filed lawsuits uh, looking to block or otherwise uh, uh, unwind the legislation that was signed into law. That being said, uh, let, let's go through what the new Florida law uh, is going to do. And, and by the way, you know, by all accounts, and, and this is according to an article that came out of the Washington Post uh, just, just yesterday on Sunday. Uh, by all accounts, Florida ran a virtually flawless election in 2020. 
there were no major reports of fraud, long lines, or ballots of eligible voters being disqualified due to non-matching signatures. So, you know, in addition, even uh, under the coronavirus pandemic, Florida hit a stunning 77% of the electorate, its highest level in Florida in nearly two decades. Uh, Floridan, Floridians of all party affiliations voted by mail in record numbers, too, with 53% of Democrats and 35% of Republicans choosing to cast their ballots via voting by mail. Uh, keep those two numbers in mind. We're going to come back to those. 53% of Democrats, 35% of Republicans. We're going to talk about those. Um, so, you know, the, the article raises the questions about how uh, these measures will actually uh, affect voting in the Sunshine State, given that the just-concluded uh, 2020 election was run and, and concluded, by all accounts, in a flawless fashion. So it raises the question as to what problems does the new Florida law address? You know, and DeSantis and other Republicans have said it's always a good idea uh, to continue improving state election laws and to anticipate problems that could erode public trust in the results. They were also candid about one major reason for the bill, the fact that many Republicans believe widespread fraud tainted the presidential election and swung it for President Biden. Now, this, this uh, assertion has been you know, posted you know, around the country in all of the battleground states and many others, and you know, was the subject of more than 60 lawsuits, none of which uh, found any evidence of you know, anything near substantial voter fraud. Now, you know, elections always have uh, ballots that are you know, tossed out or, or you know, even fraudulently completed, but the numbers compared to the number of people that vote are so minuscule as to be nearly unmeasurable. Uh, but yet, you know, as we've seen in, in the past six months since the election, uh, the Republican Party in general and, you know, former President Trump in particular have, you know, made it a continual litany of uh, accusations that the election was uh, fraudulent. So Governor Ron DeSantis said the new law was necessary to strengthen election integrity. And, you know, some of the, the features of the law are as follows. The law requires election officials to share more information about the number of votes cast. Um, DeSantis wants the election supervisors in the county to publish hourly turnout numbers uh, to provide, quote, transparency to the public about how many Floridians have cast ballots and prevent bad actors from dumping, quote, satchels of fraudulent votes into ballot boxes. DeSantis was amplifying an accusation made repeatedly by former President Trump, who stated falsely that hundreds of thousands of illegal ballots were dumped at election offices in such states as Wisconsin and Michigan. Another element of the law, it blocks private donations to assist election administration. Uh, DeSantis said the provision prevents private money from running Florida's elections. He called the practice Zuckerbucks, a reference to millions of dollars that Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan donated to help state and local election administrators around the country 
prepare for last year's pandemic mired election. So, you know, and these funds were also uh, of a help to both Republican and Democratic counties in Florida in 2020. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, been credited by many election officials that the money actually helped the elections run smoothly, you know, including in areas such as Philadelphia, where officials said a large counting facility to accommodate the surge in mail balloting would not have been possible without a $10 million grant funded by Zuckerberg and Chan. So, you know, the article goes on to ask the question, what does the new law mean for voting by mail? The, the law dramatically curtails the use of drop boxes. Uh, and it says, you know, with the exception of drop, drop boxes located in the offices of county election supervisors, the new law prohibits drop boxes from being accessible beyond the hours of early voting. In many counties, this is limited to eight hours per day and for just eight days in the weeks leading up to election day. Counties have the option of adding four additional hours each day and six additional days. In no circumstance would drop boxes be available the day before election day or on election day itself. If any drop box is found to be accessible outside of those hours, the local supervisor of election could be subject to a civil penalty of $25,000. And it states that drop boxes must also be staffed by an election worker at all times they are available to voters. An additional provision of the law says that drop box locations have to be set 30 days before an election meaning mobile drop boxes, which election administrators used last year to move boxes to high-volume locations, are prohibited. Uh, another feature of the law, it requires voters to renew their mail ballot application every two years. Uh, this is in comparison to previously. Uh, applications were valid for up to two election cycles or four years. Both Republican and Democratic operatives say this change could confuse and even disenfranchise voters who have grown used to automatically receiving their mail ballot for four years. Uh, another provision, it adds identif new identification requirements for mail ballot requests. Uh, basically, they have to provide a Florida driver's license, uh, a state-issued uh, non-driver ID number, or the last four digits of a Social Security number. Uh, those who have none of these forms of identi identification may not vote by mail, a reality that critics say will disproportionately affect lower-income individuals and Black and Latino voters who are less likely to possess such an ID. Uh, it goes on to ask, how else could the law dispropor disproportionately affect communities of color? It prohibits any behavior with the intent to influence a voter. So what does that mean? Supporters of the law say this provision includes any effort except by election officials to provide food or water to a voter waiting in a long line to vote. Multiple studies show that precincts with large black populations tend to endure longer lines on election day. In Florida, particularly during early voting in October, that can mean standing in a line in the hot sun. So... You know, they're, they're looking, and, and the Georgia law also had this provision in it. So they're looking at, you know, ways to, to make it, you know, un more uncomfortable for people to wait in a long line. And just like in Georgia, it now makes it a crime to um, provide food and water uh, to voters.
what else does it do? Uh, it bans ballot harvesting by limiting how many ballots an individual may drop off at a ballot on, ba on behalf rather of other voters. Uh, basically, this is going to limit the number of ballots that an individual can drop off uh, to a, a drop-off location to two, uh, not including certain family members. So, you know, it, it's really curtailing the idea of people who, you know, do the favor for those who may not be able to get to a polling location or get to a Dropbox location to take their completed and sealed ballots to a Dropbox and drop it off. Now, the article does talk about some things that the law does to expand access, uh, and it you know, goes on to says it expands the definition of immediate family members permitted to turn in ballots for others, uh, adding grandparents to a list that previously included children, grandchildren, parents, spouses, and siblings. So, you know, the, the, the idea here is that while, you know, it does expand, you know, by one set of family members, the number of people that can, you know, deliver ballots to a Dropbox location, it limits the number of ballots to just two people outside of family members. Uh, it does, you know, several other things that are going to make it more difficult for people to vote, including such things as limiting the locations and exposure of drop boxes uh, to the voting public. Now, remember I asked you to hold on to those two numbers, 53% uh, of uh, Democrats and 35% of Republicans choosing to cast ballots this way. This was brought up in another article that came out uh, this past week uh, talking about how an unintended consequence of this bill in Florida could actually you know, impact that 35% of Republican voters who uh, cast their ballots you know, by mail. And, and in particular, that 35% is overwhelmingly composed of you know, older voters and you know, senior citizens who rely on the ability to just early vote by casting their ballot into a drop box uh, and may not have you know, a, a method or transportation to get to a polling place or to get to one of the new drop box locations and therefore be required to show up on election day to vote in person. Uh, apparently, that did not seem to be a uh, discouraging factor for you know Governor DeSantis in passing this bill. The other bit, the other thing that this bill will do is, um, you know, the the idea that you know the the number of drop boxes and the locations of drop boxes are going to be you know curtailed. And the, the fact that they need to be set 30 days before an election uh, also could impact uh, unan unanticipated high volume areas as Election Day grows closer by limiting the ability of election officials to provide additional coverage for those areas that get overwhelmed by the number of voters. And again, leading to those long lines. Uh, and, you know, making the fact that, you know, no food or water can be delivered to people waiting in a long line. And remember, we could be talking about many, many, many uh, seniors 
uh, who you know are are susceptible to the effects of heat. And if you've ever been to Florida, you know that for most parts of Florida, October is not like you know up here in the Northeast where it starts to get chilly. It's still hot in Florida in October. So you know the law seems, you know, again much like Georgia's law, there there seems to be you know a a determination here by Republican lawmakers uh, with many of these laws to cure a problem that there was no evidence uh, existed uh, in the 2020 election. You know, as we said, there was no widespread, you know, voter fraud that could, you know, swing the outcome of an election in any state in the country. Um, There were, in many cases, such as Florida, the, the voting process actually went smoother than it had in many years. Uh, the number of people who took advantage of early voting and mail-in voting uh, was uh, much, much higher than it has been in past years. And, you know, particularly among uh, essentially white Republican older voters, uh, not the group that, you know, the Republicans were always talking about and have uh, apparently or, or, you know, wanted to target these measures to curtail access to voting. You know, uh, poor communities, you know, communities uh, of color, the black community, Asian community, Latino, Hispanic communities, and so forth. Uh, what it's going to end up doing is impacting those voters in, you know, rural counties uh, where the distance to get to a polling place may be long. Uh, and, you know, those also are counties that are, you know, predominantly Republican counties. So, you know, this may be a case of shooting oneself in the foot by the Republican Party, uh, where they are trying to disenfranchise one group of voters and end up disenfranchising uh, a lot of groups of voters, including their own. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep tabs on what happens with this bill as, as we are with the Georgia bill. Uh, particularly, we'll, we'll see what the response is to the numerous lawsuits that are being filed uh, to, to overturn this law, or at least to uh, get it injuncted until, you know, more study and more impact uh, analysis can be performed uh, to perhaps convince the Republicans to rethink some of the provisions that they have in the bill. But I think, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, over a month ago when George's bill uh, was signed, that we will start to see other dominoes in this chain of, you know, voting restrictions and, you know, perhaps voter suppression uh, begin to fall around the country as more and more state legislatures uh, take up the mantle of these kinds of changes that we have seen come out of Georgia and now Florida. And there are, all, there are others um, that also have you know, introduced restrictions on voting. So we will keep you posted. We will follow up on this story as it develops uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, so keep it tuned here. Uh, if you have opinions on it, you know, as I said, uh, we're always interested in hearing what the listeners have to say. Uh, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. And let us know your thoughts. Uh, what do you think of the Florida bill? Uh, does it go too far? 
Does it not go far enough? Are there provisions in it that you would like to see changed or are the things you want to see added? Always interested in hearing your thoughts on you know the information we bring to you. So again, the email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, you know, let us know what your thoughts are. We'd love to have a discussion on, you know, what's going on with this. So let's move to uh, a, a different side of the political spectrum. Um, over the time since the January 6th uh, protest and, and incursion and storming of the Capitol building, uh, several of the major social media platforms uh, banned uh, former President Donald Trump from access to their platform because of his uh, comments uh, allegedly uh, inciting the insurrection and the damage uh, done to the Capitol and the injuries and death to uh, people at the protest. Um, while Twitter uh, has permanently banned uh, President Trump, Facebook uh, banned him for a, quote, indefinite period, close quote. Uh, and uh, just this week, uh, Facebook's oversight board, uh, which has been reviewing the, the banning of uh, the former president, uh, announced their verdict uh, or their decision uh, this past Wednesday. Uh, the board uh, voted to sustain the banning of former President Trump from the Facebook platform uh, for an additional six months, uh, also instructing Facebook to come back with clarifications on you know, the, the behaviors and you know, the, the rules and policies that they will use going forward uh, to ban uh, you know, high-profile individuals and, and political figures and and so forth uh, going forward into the future. So an uh, article that came out uh, went on to say um, that Facebook's oversight board has upheld Facebook's ban on former President Donald Trump as announced by the organization on Wednesday. However, the board says that, quote, it was not appropriate for Facebook to impose close quote, an indefinite suspension on President Trump and calls on the company to review this decision within the next six months to determine and justify a proportionate response that is consistent with the rules that are applied to other users of its platform. The review opens the door to allowing Trump back onto the platform at some point this year, but leaves the ultimate decision in Facebook's hands. Um, you know, the, the article goes on to state in a quote from Facebook uh, saying that Mr. Trump's account remains suspended, says Facebook in a statement issued Wednesday. Facebook's vice president of global affairs and communications, Nick Clegg, said that Facebook would consider the board's decision and determine a policy position regarding indefinite bans as requested by the board. In the meantime, Mr. Trump's accounts remain suspended, Clegg said. First announced in 2018, the oversight board itself is funded by a grant from Facebook, but is politically independent from the company, composed of independent experts from a range of companies and backgrounds. It was designed to serve as an international appeals court for high-stakes moderation cases, although the Trump ban is by far the highest-profile case to come before the organization. 
you know, and, and as I mentioned earlier, Trump was suspended from Facebook following the deadly Capitol riot this past January. Shortly after suspending the account, Facebook asked the oversight board to review Trump's ban. Initially scheduled for 90 days, the review was postponed in April after more than 9,000 public remarks came in commenting on the ruling. And they quoted as saying, Mr. Trump created an environment where a serious risk of violence was possibly was possible, rather, excuse me. Notably, the board's ruling affirms that Trump's post on January 6th contributed to the violence of the Capitol riot in maintaining an unfounded narrative of electoral fraud and persistent calls to action. Mr. Trump created an environment where a serious risk of violence was possible, the decision reads. At the time of Mr. Trump's post, there was a clear, immediate risk of harm, and his words of support for those involved in the riots legitimized their violent actions. Um, you know, the, the idea is uh, that, you know, they are saying, uh, obviously, that, you know, the, the comments that President Trump made uh, through the Facebook platform leading up to the insurrection on January 6th and then on the day of the insurrection, um, you know, really, you know, riled up the, the crowd and created the situation that we saw play out on national television. Um, it, it's, you know, it's clear that, you know, the board thought heavily about this, realizing that, you know, what they decide here is going to have impacts far down the line, you know, into the future with other high profile, um, you know, uh, people, both political and other leaders and influencers. So, you know, it, it, it is, again, interesting to see that, you know, Facebook essentially has, with, has upheld the suspension of President Trump, but essentially kicked the can down the road for six months uh, and is going to rely on, you know, Facebook corporate to come up with a final decision. So, you know, it's uh, it's interesting to note that the, the several times that President Trump sought to to circumvent his suspension, i.e. Uh, sending information out uh, both through Twitter and through Facebook, through intermediaries, uh, these were also flagged and deleted by the platforms and so forth. And lastly, it, it should be noted in, in related story that this week, uh, President Trump launched his you know, much promised new uh, social media platform uh, called, I believe, From the Desk of President Donald Trump, uh, which was touted as being you know, a totally new direction in social media and a game changer and all these other, you know, high expectations by the former president. Uh, and, but in effect, uh, it has turned out to be nothing more than a simple blog post page uh, that also has very limited, at least as of this broadcast, has very limited response capabilities from uh, those that, that sign up for it, uh, although that is being promised uh, to, to become a reality uh, very soon and may in fact already be in place as of you know our broadcast today um, but you know it, it is you know 
uh, a, a very low energy you know, effort. Um, and a lot of the critics are, are calling out its, its poor design and, and other features uh, to say, you know, it, it's just another, uh, you know, attempt from the former president to, you know, gaslight uh, his followers. And, you know, the, the largest feature on the page uh, are actually the contribution buttons in order to uh, encourage, you know, the readers to send money to the former president and to send money to his uh, so-called campaign action committee. So we'll, we'll see how that, that plays out and how well it's received and, and what its impact is. Um, you know, but the, 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 the Trump phenomenon continues. Uh, you know, someday we'll, we'll be, be clear of it, but not for right now. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week, everybody. I uh, hope everybody uh, has a great week. Uh, please remember to, to stay safe, wear your mask when you're in circumstances where it's needed, uh, maintain social distancing, um, you know, make sure that you're washing your hands and practicing good hygiene. And if you have the opportunity to get an appointment to get a vaccine, please go get yourself vaccinated. The more people we have vaccinated, the faster this pandemic will, you know, reduce and, and have less impact on our, ourselves, our homes, our communities, and our country. Thank you all for listening. As always, if you have any comments or questions, please send them to firedupradio at yahoo.com. That's going to do it for me. This is Steve, your host at Fired Up on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. I look forward to talking to you all again in seven days. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late